a Radio 191 FM podcast. Hey team, I'm Henry. And I'm Kate. And welcome to our brand new podcast, Does, Does This Count as Study? Woohoo! So in this podcast, we are going to be interviewing your favourite lecturers and discussing their interests, their passions, how they got to where they are and any fun little side stories along the way. Remember that this is their own opinions and experiences they've had and it doesn't represent the uni as a whole. Yes. And today, in our first episode, we had Annika Boker. You may recognise her from Health Science, from Cells 191, Biochemistry. She is a crazy cool woman and we had some really stimulating chats about the futures of genetic engineering, gene therapy... And even a little bit of physics. Stay tuned and enjoy. Hello everybody, welcome to our first episode of Does This Count As Study? My name is Kate Pitches. I'm the other host, um, Henry Hollis, and today we have a very lovely guest, Annika. Annika is a biochem professor. Woohoo, yes, you may know her from House Size, Cells 191, Bioc 192, and floating around campus. Welcome, Annika. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Yes, um, We would love to know kind of how you got into your biochemistry subject. What, what led you there? Um, to biochemistry or New Zealand or a bit of both? A bit of both, yeah. Uh, if it's part of the journey. Yeah, it's, it's quite a... Interesting story. It it all started with a sports injury, in fact. So when I was uh, younger, your age, a little bit younger, I used to do a lot of sports. That was my main thing. And I played four sports at a quite high competitive level. So I played at national and provincial level. Uh, but during a soccer game, I injured my knee very badly and I couldn't quite return to the same level of commitment. So I decided to study instead. And I had always really enjoyed molecular biology in school, so I decided to go and study molecular biology somewhere. Um, but in Sweden, where I went to school, uh, it's quite hard to get into university because they have a cap on, on number of spaces, and my grades were not good enough to get into a science program. Yeah, I spent most of my time focusing on sports, not schoolwork at the time. Um, so I applied, I decided to go overseas instead. And I also thought I'll go somewhere where they speak English. Uh, so to force myself to learn English. I know English is compulsory to study in Sweden, but yeah, I didn't mm. really pay too much attention to it. Um, and I was considering the States, but um, decided against it because it seemed a bit too violent for me. Um, I was considering Australia. But then there were like the spiders and the snakes that I wasn't too keen on. (laughs) And New Zealand seemed nice. And Otago University was just about to launch the genetics program. So I decided, okay, I'll just take off um, to New Zealand. Um, And I enrolled in genetics uh, as a genetics major. But after doing most of the first year health side papers, I discovered that biochemistry is, can be quite a biological science. So I ended up doing quite a lot of biochemistry as a result. Yeah. Must say you picked a groovy place to, to come study. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, if you're still here, 
So you've done from undergrad to postgrad to PhD and now teaching at Otago Uni. Yeah. So quite the long time that you've been yep, here over the course. Yeah. So how do you think university and biochemistry has changed in your time at, in Dunedin? Um, it has changed quite a lot. I mean, from an education point of view, the content has re- been reduced over mm-hmm. the years. Um, and I think there are two main reasons for that. One is the increased student numbers. Well, I can only really speak for the papers I have been involved in, which is mostly health sciences papers. But because of the increase in student numbers, we have just simply not been able to fit all the students in for to-do labs. So about 20 years ago, there used to be 12 labs, one lab, one new lab each week. But now we're down to having five labs only per HealthSide paper. Um, and the uh, second reason would also to improve the mental welfare of students. So the content has been reduced a little bit to allow the students to uh, to give the students a bit more time to do non-study related activities during the days. It's greatly um, appreciated. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think. Um, with labs, things have changed quite a bit in within the lab environment as well. They have um, implemented way more uh, protocols and restrictions on that dictates what you're going to do or how you're going to do do things. I mean, I remember in the beginning of my honours year, um, my lab space where I was was just across the hall from a growth room. So I used to just take my bacterial cultures, take two steps across the corridor into the growth room. But towards the end of my PhD, if you wanted to carry anything that was alive, you had to put it in a sealed container and carry it. So I just had to pack everything up, put it in a container, seal it, take my two steps across the corridor (laughs) into the growth room and then unpack everything. (laughs) So, yeah, things have changed. Actually, on labs, do you... Um, have a favourite one other to take or was there one back in the day that you absolutely loved that's kind of stuck with you? Uh, I think I I always liked the labs where you had a lot of hands-on work Um, so I did like the what is now called cells it was called Biol 115 at the moment because there was a lot of hands-on stuff and I did really enjoy the biochemistry labs as well because uh, there was a lot of experimental work where you use different types of equipment so that was yeah. fun at the time and it's still very fun yeah I guess what I want to know is how did you find this passion like how did you realize your love for biochemistry and what do you think you would be doing if you didn't do biochemistry? Yeah. I think with a passion, I think it's just something that is part of you. Everyone has different passions. Um, And sometimes you have a passion, but you don't know about it. uh, And you discover it by life experiences. So I, I always enjoyed science at school, but I never thought I would be teaching. Um, and when I went into my PhD, my aim was to do my PhD, work really hard to get my own lab and do research. But during my PhD, I always also started teaching, first as a demonstrator and then a lab supervisor and then helping out more and more with teaching activities. 
And that's kind of when I discovered like, that I really, really enjoy helping students to learn and not just to help them to learn, but do the teaching in a very fun and slightly different and an engaging way. Um, to answer your second part of the question, what I would be doing if I wasn't doing what I'm doing now, I think I would probably do some kind of sports, pro, uh, be a professional sports coach or maybe doing sports science, um, simply because of my very strong sporting background. I still, I still love sports. Not rugby or cricket, but... <laughs> The thing I wanted to know, what inspired doing handstands in, in your lectures? <laughs> Two things. It's always fun to show off. <laughs> um, it was a headstand, but I think it was just a really fun way to demonstrate that you always read DNA in the five to three prime direction because we, we, our heads are just said like set in the, um, like we read from left to right because that's how we read books in mm -hmm. most languages. But DNA, uh, you always read five to three prime directions. So it doesn't matter if you put the five prime label on the left, on the right, or on the top, on the bottom. You just have to readjust your brain and think five to three irrespectively of where the five prime is so yes i was <laughs> moving my body into different positions including uh, an upside down position <laughs> to demonstrate that it doesn't matter where the five prime is that's the direction you read from it's definitely memorable yeah uh, good <laughs> yeah kate told me that um because I, I obviously haven't been in any of your lectures, and Kate was like, um, oh, yeah, you, she's you a missed out." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And she's done a um, done a handstand or headstand one of her one of her lectures in first year. I was like, "Damn, we have to get her on the podcast." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I had a quick look at your PhD in my spare time, and it was the um, fun reading. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was it was interesting. I actually love reading other people's work. That I've done that they're interested in. It's kind of why we're here on this podcast. But no, it was about genetic engineering. Well, that's what I've kind of took away from it. But I'm hoping you can explain um, a little bit more. Yeah. So, well, I mean, I guess genetic engineering is quite a broad term. So the term genetic genetic engineering describes the addition or removal or tweaking of a DNA sequence in an organism and you can't avoid doing genetic engineering if you do science within biochemistry or genetic, so yes. Um, my project was called Analysis of Fungal Intains, if I remember correctly, <laughs> it was a while ago. Um, but intains themselves are kind of like protein segments that have inserted themselves within other proteins and they have to remove themselves for that protein they are within to function. And they're quite smart because they have inserted themselves within really critical proteins. So the host can't select against them because they need to stay active to allow the critical host, host protein to function. And they can be found in a lot of uh, infectious pathogens but they're absent in higher eukaryotes such as humans mm -hmm. so the idea at the time was to maybe use them as a therapeutic target because they could f be found in pathogenic fungi but not in humans um, but also at the time there wasn't much known about them um, so my study was to look at 
where they came from and how they functioned and how they removed themselves from the host proteins. And also later on, um, a few of them have like an enzyme that cuts DNA. So it was also having a look at how the, how the, how the specificity worked to cut the DNA. And all that wasn't part of my project, the long-term application of that could have been to use that um, function of the intains uh, in a targeted gene therapy um, technology. So like the application would be figuring out how the enzyme works, how it would cut at a region and then trying to apply that to to any region yeah because they're very specific so yeah because those enzymes are called homing endonucleases they recognize a about a 20 uh base pair long unique dna stretch which is in the world of dna a very long unique sequence so we wanted to see what particular amino acids within that sequence it were really important and then have a look at how can we engineer the enzyme change it so it recognize recognizes a sequence that you want it to recognize mm-hmm. and then if you can decide where you're going to cut dna uniquely just in one position and a whole genome then you can put something in at that particular position Been- game changer really yeah like now they have crispr cas yeah. which does it quite well but the, there's still some some off-target uh cuts that can happen by crispr cas so crispr is slightly a different method to what you were doing uh yes different method but the same purpose yeah yeah um would you actually like to explain then what crispr is and how that works. Um, yeah, so I think we need a little bit of background in that case. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so if you have a person with a genetic disease, and if that genetic disease is caused by an abnormal gene, so the, there's a mutation in the gene, what you could do, possibly, what would be to replace that abnormal gene with a normal version of the gene. Um, by putting the normal DNA sequence into the host person. Um, You can incorporate DNA into genomes relatively easily by just injecting DNA, but in that case you have no control of where that DNA goes and it could end up in other genes that might uh, that you'll need or it could be ending up in regulatory regions which will muck up the function of other genes so it is in fact really important to be able to control where you put your DNA so to be able to do that it, it is essentially just like cutting the DNA and pasting your new, new piece of DNA in so what CRISPR does it allows you to cut your desired region of DNA at a unique location and then paste your DNA of interest in there. Which is crazy. Like, when you explain it like that, just thinking of the applications yeah. of how, what you could do with it. Yeah, yeah I know Henry yeah. has some questions about <laughs> it. Some, some nerdy questions. Yeah, go but for I was it. wondering, um, this is really kind of out there, but is it kind of possible to almost theoretically make humans better by placing genes that will improve humans and over time I mean, make them stronger or faster or almost anything is theoretically possible mm-hmm. um i mean what i just explained is what i guess would be referred to as gene therapy mm-hmm. um 
and it has been applied successfully in some diseases like some uh, eye disorders where they inject the correct gene into the cells of the eye. But what's it, what it is important to remember is that it's only those body cells that will re- receive the new DNA. Uh, it will not be present in the germ cells. So that type of genetic modification will not be passed on to future generations. So if you're going to, what I think you're saying, create a human with super natural abilities, uh, you would have to modify the genetic background of an embryo. So so every single cell of that individual will carry those genetic modifications. It will be passed on to the next generation. It will be passed on to the next generation as well. And if we talk about just modifying a single gene... Uh, I guess technically it's not too difficult. It's still challenging, but it has actually been done. There was a naughty scientist who um, did it, wasn't allowed to, but he did produce a few embryo that he had genetically modified. Um, the modification in that case, he had in- inactivated a gene that was important for HIV infection. So it's essentially made these individuals uh, immune for uh, to be infected by HIV. Um, so if you're only going to target a single gene, is it possible? Absolutely. But if we're thinking about these superhuman traits that you're referring to, like, I don't know, super strength, high intelligence, really great vision, my answer would probably be no, because these type of traits are controlled by a very large number of genes and those genes all work together in very complex networks that we don't understand. So you would have to dissect and find out which, say, 3,573 genes contribute to intelligence and which combination of each one of those genes is the most optimal for intelligence and then genetically modify all those genes. And we, don't, we just don't have that information, so... No, we won't be creating superhumans. Too much, much effort. Yeah. <laughs> Stick with what we got. Yeah. Um, oh, I just find that topic so fascinating, yeah. though, like just the potentials of yeah. where it and that, that's go. why I really um, that's why I chose to do genetics because it is that particular area of genetics and biochemistry that I really find fascinating. Like pushing through the. I don't know, like the gen- like figuring out the code and then being able to figure out what we can do yeah. to it's edit the code and stuff. Yeah. Um, if you could start up a new study and money wasn't an issue, what would you want your study to be? What experiments would you run? Um, um, I think because I have such a strong interest and background in sports uh, and I also have a great interest in genetics, I think I would like to work with professional athletes and have a look at their genetic background and see if there were ways of deciphering their genetic background to improve their and apply that information and knowledge and then use that to improve their athletic performance. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I guess there were two, it would be two areas that you would have to look at. First of all, muscle type because there are different type of muscle fibers, some that are more suitable for high intensity, short duration work like sprinting and other muscle types that would be more suitable for 
um, lower intensity, long duration work like uh, marathon running. There's one fiber in between as well. But these muscle fibers have quite different biochemistry and quite different protein content. So I think it would be very cool to have a look at how much of that biochemistry and the protein content, although these different muscle fibers are determined by genetics or changed or influenced by training regime, mm -hmm. for example. And, of course, if you do physical activity, you need to generate energy to power your muscles. And uh, you can either use glycogen stores in your muscles. Uh, you can use glycogen stores from your liver. You can use fat stores, depending on the type of exercise. But also be cool to see how big influence genetics has on a person's ability to mobilize those different energy stores versus the influence of exercise. And based on a particular gene genetic background, you might be able to optimize the type of work you do or training you do to get the best athletic outcome. That's dope. Mm, that'd be That's so interesting. Like, yeah. ge genetic specific training programs yeah. or... Yeah, yeah, because I, to... yeah, cause they have we have what is called precision precision medicine. It used to be co uh, called personalized medicine. So what they do there is that they look at the person's genetic background and give treatments based on that. So you can have a group of individuals that all have the same disease, but because they have different back genetic backgrounds, they either get completely different treatments, or if they get the same treatment or same drug, they might get given the drug uh, in different doses or different at uh, different intervals. So this is kind of, I guess, similar to that, but applied to sports. Mm. So some That's people nice. would have be more affected by theoretically push-ups and then some yes. people would be affected mm -hmm. more by... That's cool. That's really cool. You could... You're quite far with that, I reckon. And I think... Because um, biochemistry is also about metabolism, so I'm not sure. Have you guys heard about epigenetics or epigenetic marks? Yeah, a little bit. So it's um, it's a science where which is about chemical modifications of DNA. So you can have add different types of chemical groups onto your DNA. So you're not changing the DNA sequence, but and by adding different types of chemical groups onto your DNA, you can either turn certain genes on or off, or regulate how much on or off they're going to be. And these type of chemical modifications are, can be quite influenced by environment, including diet. And we all know that diet is important in exercise. So another thing that I probably would enjoy looking into is how different types of diets may possibly change these epigenetic marks to more optimally provide a person with a genetic or gene expression pattern to optimize their athletic performance. That'd be quite yeah. cool. So you almost like stimulate some genes with food and environment mm -hmm. and then train on those genes. Yep, with pretty support. much. That'd be so, because I feel like, you know, it's like common knowledge that like fruits and veggies are healthy for mm -hmm. us and stuff. But it'd be awesome to be like, it's good because this gene gets attacked and activated and yeah. to be able to pinpoint exactly yeah, why. Yeah, I mean, my, my son is a, my oldest son is a competitive swimmer. He's only 12 and I'm a little bit crazy 
like one of those crazy parents at times, but I always look at his swimming and if he goes to a competition, I write down what type of races he's doing. Is he doing a 50 meter, which is a short sprint, or is he doing 200, which is middle distance, or if he's doing a longer race? And then I also have a look at how long time he has between the races and I feed him different types of food at different type points based on the type of race he will be doing and has just been doing. Wow. We've already started the study. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do it on and hands. he does quite well. <laughs> Must be working. Yeah. That's cool. If you take like a gene or like a strain or like a, I don't know what you can form out of the, something that's not human. Yeah. And can you then add that one into human or is that Like dangerous? transgenesis? Yeah. Yeah, like, I mean... So it depends on what the outcome is. Just adding it and letting it sit there, that's not well, a problem. Be a if, reason. Yeah, um, but if you want to make a pro, if you want your, say, if you want to move a pig gene into a human, you can definitely move the DNA. That's technically not that challenging. What the challenges might be is that if the human body then makes that pig protein, what will that pig protein do in your body? Yeah. So they just don't know. The aftermath is what. Yeah. Um, So you wouldn't usually uh, put non-human proteins into human. What you would do is that you would put human genes into non-human organisms to make human proteins that you then put back into humans. Oh, okay. So, I mean, um, I mean that's one part of engineer, genetic engineering. So, I said it was kind of adding and removing DNA to different organisms. Um, I mean, and, and genetic engineering is a big part of uh, modern life or modern society in the Western countries at least. I mean, we use engineering to make medicines such as insulin. So, the human insulin gene is put into bacteria the bacteria then makes the human insulin, which we then give to diabetes people. Vaccines are made through genetic engineering, um, anti-clotting factors, growth factors. There are a lot of things that are made. Mm. Human proteins or human genes have been put into other organisms to make the human proteins that we then give to the humans as medicines. Do you know any... um like specific trait or either animal or food that has actually been done for humans with humans um what do you mean with like have they taken a gene from human put it into a say i don't know a potato <laughs> a potato <laughs> Just i'm not sure do you know any like specific one um not not that extreme i mean as I said, insulin would be a good example. Insulin. Yeah. Um, the antibodies, a lot of antibodies are made in mice or bunnies and they then give them back to humans. Sheep, for example, have been used as animal models for cystic fibrosis simply because the lung size and capacity is similar to human, but also because the physiology of the sheep lung is similar to humans. I know they did try mice before, but the, the, all the lungs are obviously way smaller in mice, but also the physiology and how the mouse lung worked was quite different from humans. Um, so I guess there are a lot of things you can technically achieve but whether you'll get the outcome that you 
want. Whether it's legal or not. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Very good point. <laughs> We've got a slightly different question, which I thought was quite interesting. If you could know the absolute and total truth to one question, one question only, what would you ask? Um... I think it would be a physics-related question. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> nothing. Uh, I simply, I mean, the, there's this Big Bang theory that uh, currently most people favour that explains how universe began. But as the name suggests, Big Bang theory, it's a theory at the moment. So I think mm-hmm. it would be very cool if we could f- get a definite answer of how universe, the universe began. began. They have photos before of like the radioactive decay before the Big Bang. Yes, I mean the astrophysicists they had they can read these echo. I'm not really a physicist, but I can read like some kind of traces or echo yeah. rays or whatever they call them uh, of what they think happened before the universe started. But um, uh, yeah. that's, that's yeah. kind of how they predicted it. Yeah, a yeah. definitive answer though that would yeah. be. But it's I, I simply simply because there are several other things in science where we have thought, known for, or believed that this was the case, and then hundreds of years later it was proven to be different. Mm-hmm. I'm sure they're right, but I think um, to know just a yes yeah, or no. Yes, yes an F, would be... definite yes or definite no would be cool. Yeah, that's a cool so. question. Um, to finish it up, we're doing a trend where you're going to tell us um, one of your favourite stories. <laughs> of um, anecdotes of your time throughout uni? Um, well, I think it's not overly exciting, but I really enjoy bumping into students, either on campus, in supermarkets, <laughs> or on a sports field somewhere, or at Monopol. Um, and the students, uh, ex-students, start talking to me, and they start talking about how much they enjoyed my lectures and that they remember my demonstrations. And because of those demonstrations, they actually remember the content. Um, so I think, yeah, it just feels like, yeah, I did a good job uh, there. Yeah. Oh, that's so sweet. And I can definitely say credit where credit's due as yeah. a student in some of your classes. That oh, it's cool. Great teacher. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, maybe just a final, like, if you had any advice for a student that was listening to this podcast about they're not really sure where their passions are or they like science but they don't really know anything, they're maybe new to Otago or uni, what would you um, say? I would say definitely talk with uh, people, like academic stuff, maybe not necessarily go and hassle um the highest professor in a particular department by talk with the people on the ground like the the teaching fellows who are involved in the teaching um and i mean ask a target is good but they don't always give you the whole picture so i think if you're not sure about what to do talk with the the teaching staff because they have a really good overview of what you can get out of what you're doing or what you if you're not sure about what you want to do what you can do to keep as many doors open as possible and I think that's what a lot of students uh, end up in trouble after a year or two of studies Um, they haven't talked with people and gotten the the advice that they should have been given Mm. and you it's way before your time, but when I was a student, to even be enrolled, 
everyone had to line out outside Smithall's gym. Every single student had to go in and talk with a course advisor in Smithall's gym. It was like a three-day process to get all the students through, and we don't have that anymore. So I think if you're unsure, definitely find one of the academic advisors and have a chat to them. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good advice. Yeah, that's awesome. I've got... Another final question. <laughs> Go for it. And that's um, <laughs> Levi's or Just Jeans? <laughs> oh, uh, none. I don't wear. No. I don't wear. <laughs> <laughs> don't like jeans. I don't wear. Je- I, I don't know if you notice. I always wear skirts because I just, I just never worn jeans. And I never worn pants in my whole life. I can't stand the feeling of stuff around my legs. Um, <laughs> like that. <laughs> Sorry to disappoint that's you. That's the most there. important question. Yeah. Um, <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you awesome. For ha- First podcast. Thank you for having me. It's yeah. all good. I hope everyone listening, if yeah, they have uh, questions or it sparks something, can definitely yes, come, come and reach us. out to us or to Annika if you heard Absolutely. something and you were like, wow, that sounds intriguing. Yeah. And if you haven't already, follow our Instagram. Yeah. Does this count as study? The handles does this count as. Yes. Perfect. Yes. Cheers. High five. High five. That was a Radio 1 91FM podcast. You can find more at r1.co.nz or wherever quality content is found.